Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. The Contrarian Investor Podcast wants to find the best and give them a voice. To help in our search, we use Covey to find and track the best contrarians. Our guest stock picks are available in real time on the website covey.io slash contrarian. Now these portfolios are available for anyone to view, track, and share. And on top of that, we encourage our listeners to join our community by building virtual portfolios of stocks and ETFs to compete and rise to the top. At the end of the year, we'll interview the top performing analyst on Covey, right here on the Contrarian Investor Podcast. That means you or any great contrarians you know can rise to the top based on merit and get a voice. Again, the website, covey.io slash contrarian. Here with Aaron Peck of the Value Investing Substack, joining us from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. We're going to jump off with something very familiar to U.S. audiences, which is a certain chip stock by the name of Intel Corporation, INTC stock ticker. This is a stock that has kind of not done very well. Over the last year, it's down 31%. Over the last five years, it's down 40 It's kind of gone nowhere. And yet you, Aaron, are bullish. Talk to me about that. Sure. So Intel is basically uh, one of the only three semiconductor fabs in the world, uh, which are capable of making leading edge chips. Leading edge chips are basically those below seven nanometers and below in density, transistor density. So obviously the first one, the, the highest performer now is TSMC. That's in Taiwan. The second highest performer is Samsung, which is in South Korea. And Intel is the third one. So there are only three real companies that can do this in the entire world. And this is a geopolitical thesis where chips, leading edge chips, are of national strategic importance to the US, where uh, the other side of the table is China. And TSMC and Samsung both happen to be in a little bit close proximity to China. So Intel is really the only horse that the US can bet in this race. Right. Okay, that's that's interesting. So you say that uh, these other uh, stocks have ties to China. Taiwan, though, is something... And, and these are both US allies, Korea and Taiwan. Taiwan maybe unofficially, depending on if it's even a country, whatever. Leave that alone for now. But you don't think that that would be enough for them to not lose market share to Intel? Well, the thing is that from the perspective of national strategic importance, right? This is something that the US can't do without. So 
Taiwan being as close as it is to China, there is geopolitical risk. Let's just put it that way, right? No and question. Samsung, while it is a Western ally, it is its priority is North Korea, not the West, right? And with North Korea being allied to China, if push comes to shove, you know, I imagine they pick their own local priorities over those of the US. Mm-hmm. And so that's again not something you can count on, right? Mm. I'm not saying that they're not important or significant. They are, but they're not something you can bet on the way the US can bet on Intel. Right. And let's be clear, even if the former two outperform Intel going forward, there's enough TAM in the world, right? For the tree to share the pie. Okay. So all right. So let's talk a little talk to me a little bit about, about Intel's business what these chips are used for and because they don't compete with the AMDs of the world. These are mostly PC chips. Is that right? Fill me in. Sure. Okay. So just to start with Intel's business, they actually have two uh, distinct segments. One is their legacy, uh, we call them fabless uh-huh. segment, where they're just doing the design of the chips. So Apple only has the fabless part, right? AMD only has the fabless part. They send the designs to TSMC, to be manufactured into the physical world. That's called the fab. So Intel has both. That's what we call an IDM, integrated device, uh, device manufacturer, right? And up to now, Intel has not outsourced their fabs, but they are having, uh, in light of the new geopolitical tensions, about a year or two ago, Intel actually announced that it will start allowing third parties to outsource their designs to their fabs. So this new segment is called IFS. Basically, now NVIDIA can send their uh, designs to Intel to Fab uh, instead of TSMC, right? So that's where the geopolitical significant part come in because there is literally no other leading edge Fab in, in the States, right? And if you know Samsung and TSMC end up being unreliable for any reason, then uh, that might be a problem, not just for Intel, but for NVIDIA, AMD, Apple, uh, we can go down to this. So yeah. that's correct. Got it. Yeah, and I see here a news report just from April 12th, a couple of days ago as, every, as we report this. Intel rises as it says it will work with ARM on next-gen manufacturing mobile chips. So, so it looks like some of this business is all already coming home. But why hasn't the market caught on to this? Uh, this information. I mean, look, over the last six months, Intel is up 20%. So maybe they are. And over the last month, it's up 7%. So it looks like maybe it's already bottom. Um, is that why you think? Or, or Chips are basically a very commoditized cyclical industry, which is a proxy to the global economy, right? And as you can probably tell, uh, aggregate global demand has been on the decline for a while due to the recent rate hikes. So chips... It's a double whammy from uh, firstly, the tech bubble bursting in October 2021. And on top of that, the massive rate hikes uh, that have happened since, um, let's call it February 2022. Okay. So uh, putting those two together. And and on top of that, the peak of the supply demand balance was in October 2021. So it's both a macro uh, problem as well as a sector-specific cyclical problem which is contributing to uh, the share price underperformance. Okay. But importantly, as long as Intel doesn't have any going concern risk, uh, cycles always recycle. So that's sure. my position. Yeah. So you think that we're now at the start of, an, of a new expansionary cycle for in, for the economy? Or is that- I, 
I, I, I do not necessarily think that this is a year-long trade, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, the FAPs probably won't be up until 2025 at the earliest, mm-hmm. right? But in terms of just long-term fundamental value, I, I am value investing Substack after all. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I think, yeah, right? uh, similar to Oxy with Buffett, I think there's a very uh, similar story here where uh, it's quite hard to imagine Intel staying at 16 times troll earnings Mm-hmm. for perpetuity, right? I mean, we're talking about Intel here. We're not talking about some small cap uh, semiconductor testing company in Southeast Asia. Right, right. Okay. What about what else can you tell me about the business as far as the, the fundamentals or yeah, any of those other metrics? Sure. So I think the way I'll address this is in two parts. The first part is that most people are worried that Intel repeat its underperformance of the past decade. Right, because it, uh, as we all know, it, it basically made some wrong choices, and then it underperformed TSMC, uh, quite significantly. So the reason for that is basically that Intel, after inventing the EUV technology, they decided not to go ahead and use it because of efficiency or yield concerns, right? And uh, TSMC basically took a risk, operational risk, and decided to use EUV, and the rest is history, right? EUV turned out to work. Uh, Intel relied on the older technology, which is uh, lithography at uh, 193 nanometers versus EUVs 13 nanometers. So it's a, an order of magnitude, right? And Intel basically continued on its multi-patterning route. So that's where you overlay several patterns and that increases uh, the risk of error. That increases operational and logistical uh, complexity and that results in lower yields ultimately. And with uh, chips ultimately being a commoditized business. Uh, if you have lower use, you basically underperform quite badly. Right? So what's the remedy to this? Well, a lot of bears of Intel basically say that we need uh, Intel needs another decade to catch up to TSMC, right? which is what you would expect if EUV had to be developed internally. But the good news is that in, uh, EUV is actually developed by an external party called ASML, right? It's a monopoly in the world of AS, of, uh, of EUV machines. And Intel, as, of, uh, as we speak, has already bought the machines from ASML. They do not need to R&D, right? They do not need to cultivate R&D for the next 10 years to develop their own EUV machines. All they need to do is buy it. And, you know, with things being as important as they are, they could easily, you know, poach a couple of employees from TSMC to uh, get the ball rolling almost immediately. So I'm not saying that it's an overnight thing, no, but it's not a 10-year thing, right? At most, it's a one-year learning curve, make some mistakes, recover, right? It's not the same as having to develop EUV internally and catch up to TSMC. So I think the risk of innovation uh, lag to TSMC is very uh, immaterial, right? And the second thing that I was going to say is that in the chip world, there are basically two uh, types. One is called CISC, one is called RISC. CISC is a proxy for x86, x64, right? You've heard of this before. RISC is a proxy for ARM, ARM. So the short, short version is that CISC is going to uh, lose to RISC over time due to structural disadvantages. Right, but here's the thing: we do not need to rely on Intel's fabulous business. 
this geopolitical thesis is entirely about their fab business. And Intel will be able to accept uh, orders from Apple, right? Which is doing RISC, which is doing ARM. So if we put aside the fabless business and just focus on the fab part, the question then becomes, can they say match TSMC one day in terms of performance, right? And that's another story which I want to go into in the, uh, later. Yeah. But still, right, you can easily see how the x86 as well as the past decade of underperformance is not really a factor in terms of the long-term fundamentals of Intel. Yeah. It sounds like this would be a, a kind of a, from what you're saying, a no-brainer for Apple to use Intel as they move out of China, move their production out of China, which they've already said they're going to do. Has there been any any talk about them actually using Intel yet or what, how they're going to go about that? So Intel has not actually started the IFS yet. They're in the middle of building the fabs. Uh, I think end of last year, they actually uh, took, uh, I, I forgot what's the value. They took a huge loan from Brookfields right, to basically build out the shell of the fab. So the shell is just the structure of the, the fab, the building, without the machines inside. And what, you, what, the, what building out the shell first means that it's very easy to just transplant machines in and start running, right? As opposed to having to build the whole building from scratch. So um, there, it's already in the works. No, they do not have orders from Apple yet, nor do I think they have orders from any of the big guys yet. But here's the thing, Apple has historically played fabs against each other for price competitive reasons. So they played TSMC against Samsung, right? I'm, I'm sure you've heard of the stories about five years ago where there were different kinds of quality in terms of the Apple chips in the iPhones and customers were complaining. Mm. So um, that's what Apple does, right? And if you can have three competitors instead of two to get the best price for yourself, uh, keep in mind that there are only three companies in the whole world in this sector, right? Um, uh, I, I, I see that uh, as a likely possibility, right? If not, almost a sure thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so yeah. and that uh, yeah, that, that there's your catalyst then potentially if one of them, if Apple does make an announcement that they are going to use Intel, how far away are Intel's uh, fab productions from uh, getting online? So, like I said, the IFS segment is nascent, mm-hmm. and the first fabs will at the earliest come into production in 2025, mm-hmm. right? And uh, if you were talking about base case, it's probably 2028. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, right? By the time 2025 comes and the visibility is clear, the valuation wouldn't be at this level anymore. And if their actual fabless performance uh, goes up due to, let's say, the economy recovering, it's a, it's a double whammy to the upside, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, upside risk, right? So uh, not to say that uh, this is the absolute troll, the absolute bottom, but uh, it's as good as it gets. 16x troll earnings for pretty much uh, oligopoly, global oligopoly, right? You're comparing this to the likes of Coca-Cola, uh, Apple, right? We're talking about massive, massive mega caps, yeah. not mid caps, right? Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit Contrarian. Dot supercast.tech for more information. Cool. Now talk to me. You mentioned Oxy, Occidental Petroleum. Different business, still cyclical. Why do you like that stock? So Oxy is a very unique, I guess, ENP super major, right? ENP being exploration and production. Mm-hmm. So 70% of their business is uh, oil and gas. They have 20% in 
in chemicals and 10% in others, right? So we're just going to focus on oil and gas side because chemicals is uh, notoriously, notoriously volatile. So on the oil and gas side, as you know, they bought Analaco in uh, 2019 and basically doubled their production overnight. And right now, uh, management has committed publicly to paying down the for paying for the acquisition. At the same time, limiting production growth to five percent. So in terms of shareholder return expectations, it's very straightforward. We are going to pay down the debt. We're going to pay the preferreds, the the Berkshire preferreds, which are uh, U eight percent, and we're going to return all uh focus all our efforts on increasing a common dividend. Right, so for EMP super majors, the benchmark valuation metric is dividend yield or total shareholder return if you include buybacks. So in Oxy's case, they have a lot of uh, incentive to do more buybacks, which I'll go into later. But basically, you can compare it to the dividend yield of most competitors because they mostly return the capital in terms of dividends, right? And the average of the of the top fourteen super majors. Sorry, 13, I think, is 4.7% uh shareholder return, right? Dividend yield. Whereas with Oxy, it starts at 6%, right? Worst case, 5.5, uh, assuming they do some share buybacks. And what Buffett is seeing, which I'll explain later, is up to 11%. And all these are under the base case assumption of $80 oil prices, which I'll go into later, is likely to stay or go above because uh, global oil supply is super, super tight. <laughs> yes, it is. But we do have economic headwinds, you know, slowing housing in the US, potentially employment, a lot of talk of recession, which would historically has been and will be bad for oil stocks and for oil prices in general. So there is that concern as well, is there not? Yes. So in terms of demand, definitely it's still uncertain, right? But what is beyond certain is the fact that yes, global oil supply is super tight. So if you're really thinking in terms of long-term, uh, right, the way Buffett does, uh, this is as good as it gets for a super major, EMP super major. Hmm. 6% dividend yields is pretty damn good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, compare that to uh, ExxonMobil's 3.2, Chevron's 3.5, uh, say, uh, EOG's, uh, 2.7, right? Uh, the, the, uh, and even those on a lower tier, right? Like Hess is 1.2, right? So obviously these are all not apples to apples comparison, but six is a pretty good margin of error. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we're talking about six after the preferreds, mm. right? So once those preferreds are paid over the long term, let's call it eight years, right? Which, Right. Uh, I mean, it depends on you. Uh, that goes up to eleven, based on uh very reasonable assumptions of eighty dollar oil. Mm. Right. If my base case for oil is way above eighty, okay. So let's say it goes up to hundred. Uh, at the bottom of my report, there's actually a distribution uh, sensitivity analysis. So at hundred dollar oil, it goes up to thirteen point eight percent. At hundred and twenty, it goes up to sixteen point six percent. And 150 goes up to 20.7%. These are all mm. dividend yields, right? Mm. So, uh, you know, if you're a buffer and you have $128 billion of cash burning a hole in your pocket, right? Which, of <laughs> this course, is we a, all do. Who doesn't yeah, have $128 yeah, we all do, billion yeah. in their pocket? I, yeah. I have two trillion personally, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have more than that, but yeah. Interesting. Wow. Okay, that's, that's cool. And here, too, the stock kind of hasn't gone anywhere over the last year. It's up 2.5%. What's the year to date? 
Uh, it was down yesterday. So yeah, it seems that these oil stocks, these cyclicals just kind of can't really get out of their own way. They look to have a bit of a rally, but it seems like you're saying you're still, yeah, you're long-term bullish here on the stock, if only for the income that that, that is provided by the dividend and the the, the buybacks. Right. I think the nature of value investing is that you kind of have to be contrarian in a sense yeah, that that's the easiest places to get uh get opportunities, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you could compete with the Blackstones and JP Morgans of the world in the short term, or you could just admit that you're maybe not as good as them and stick to a long term and make the same amount of money in the long term, right? So, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, that's the premise of this podcast, of course, is that, you know, the contrarian ideas, they're not always right, but they're at least worth taking into consideration. Um, Correct. Interesting, we don't talk all that much about individual stocks here. It's more about the economy, but we should. And on that, do you have any other contrarian ideas you want to discuss before we get to break? Um, we can also leave them for the uh, for the second half of the show if you have any. Um, I'm I, I've got to think about it because there's nothing that comes to mind immediately. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's fine. All right, let's take a quick break here. Aaron Peck of Value Investing Substack. I want to come back, ask you some more about yourself, your background, your Substack, and some other stuff. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you are a premium subscriber, don't touch the dial. We will not go anywhere. You will not get the break. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And anybody else who wants to become a premium subscriber, please visit the website, contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. 
Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Here with Aaron Peck of Value Investing Substack. I mentioned it at the outset. You are based in KL, Malaysia, just north of Singapore there, for those who haven't been to the region. But uh, so curious how you came to this uh, line of, of work, I guess, what your background is, what your origin story is as an, as an investor, to put things in Marvel terms. And yeah, how you came to start the Substack and some other stuff. So, so tell us about that. Yeah, so growing up, I always wanted to be a businessman because my dad was one. So I you know I read your Robert Kiyosaki's, your uh, highly effective seven seven highly effective habits, right? Uh, I never really touched investing until uh, I did my ACCA uh, uh, in my postgraduate. So ACCA is basically the equivalent to CFA, but on the accounting side, right? And uh, that's when I actually discovered Buffett because there is a finance component to it. And basically, uh, pr- uh, shortly prior to that, I realized that business just wasn't for me because uh, it's very risky, right? It's really high risk, high reward. And, uh, uh, you know, I actually did uh, see what the fallout of a failed business was like. So, uh, you know, I was a bit a little bit sad by that point, right? That I, I didn't think business was for me. So value investing really appealed to me, right? The Warren Buffett way. Because if you think about what value investors do, we invest long-term and we analyze companies like businesses, which is pretty much similar to what a CEO does, uh, other than the actual people management part, right? Because CEOs don't move barrels and warehouses. They also sit behind spreadsheets. They look at financial statements. They make data with, uh, they make decisions with slightly more granular data than public information. But uh, papers nonetheless, right? They're, they're, uh, they're not really moving stuff around. So this really appealed to me because it was both, uh, I was both able to, uh, you know, think like a businessman while diversifying my risk, right? So it was the best of both worlds for me. And then uh, over time, I spent more times in, uh, you know, global value investing communities, like Value Investing Club, uh, Security Analysis on Reddit, right? And then I spent a lot of time there. And when the Substack uh, trend started taking off, all the financial bloggers moved to Substack. I just thought, why not, right? And then uh, out of pure luck, I just tried to grab the URL, the, the subdomain valueinvesting.substack.com and I got it. <laughs> so that's the, the genesis of my, uh, my, my newsletter story. Right? Right. And then since I was organically passionate about it, you know, I just started writing about it. When did you start the Substack? Uh, I actually started it in, if I'm not wrong, January 2020. I, I could be oh, wrong, wow, okay. slightly different, but I only went paid uh, and started doing this full-time uh, October 2021. So it was okay. nearly two years after I started. Interesting. Okay. That's about as long as this Substack has been around. But, mm. and what was, so were you, were you involved in any professional capacity as an investor and analyst or anything like that before? Yes, I, I was a fund manager shortly before I started this. Okay. So I was basically a fund manager for, I was running, uh, or I was supervising, you know, a $100 million fund. And, uh, it was an Asia X Japan fund as well as a Malaysia fund. So, uh, but I also, out of just pure interest, spent a lot of time understanding both US and China markets. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I am familiar with global macro to a certain extent. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. any views on the potentially any, I would think this would be where you could really add value because everybody knows about Oxy and, and Intel, but nobody knows about, you know, what, what any 
publicly traded stocks in Malaysia or, or even Singapore or other areas, other countries in the region. So if you have any, wondering if you have any thoughts about that, either that or, or even yeah. macroeconomically about those countries. Sure. So uh, let's stick to, let's, let's talk about stocks first. And then if sure. you have time, we go into the macro, right? Yeah. So I actually do uh, like one company very much. And ironically enough, it's also an oil and gas EMP. Hmm. It's a small cap this time, right? But uh, I'm going to try and keep it as brief as possible. So it's a Malaysian oil and gas small cap who whose management team I call, or the, the MD, I call the Indian Warren Buffett of uh, Southeast Asian oil and gas. So okay. here's the reason why, right? They're What's basically, the uh, it's, sorry, it's called Hibiscus, Hibiscus okay. Petroleum. And what's really unique about them is that they're not really greenfield the way you might expect small cap EMPs to be, right? They are actually brownfield operators. So their bread and butter is acquiring uh, lagging fields and then using enhanced recovery methods to basically boost the production. And by virtue of having a lower, a lower overhead, you know, still be profitable at those rates. But it's a very free cash flow generative uh, focus as well as a low uh, low OPEX focus, right? And where they really make all their money is in the upfront acquisition costs of the business. So a good example of uh, their modus operandi is about one and a half or two years ago, they acquired uh, oil and gas uh, fuel from Vietnam Right, the authorities there from Repsol, the global the global oil and gas operator, uh, which was basically three times their revenue, their site, their production. So the way they did that was by funding the acquisition with equity amidst uh you know low oil prices of 2020, right? Keep in mind that the equity had fallen by about 50% in that time. So the way they made money was that they actually acquired the assets from Repsol at fire sale asset prices, right? And therefore there was a spread between the cost of equity and the return on equity. Keep in mind, they were funding the entire acquisition with equity. So when your share price drops, your cost of equity goes up, right? But because they bought uh, Repsol at a low uh, you know, equity value, their return on equity went up due to the share price, sorry, the oil price dropping. And therefore there was a spread, right? So, Obviously, all this is complicated from you know 30,000 feet. But from the point of view of management who has granular data, it's a simple question of does it increase my EPS? So obviously it did, right? But if you think about the business model, it's really very similar to a bank's interest rate spread because the the, it, the both the cost as well as the benefit are moving parts. They're moving goalposts, right? And they move together with wider global oil prices. So as long as the spread increases, that's when they strike. And by funding it completely with equity, they, they are completely net cash almost all the time. Uh, there is no going concern risk the way you might imagine most EMP companies might have. So combine the two, right? It's both very conservative, very contrarian. They do nothing for five years, then go out and make an acquisition three times their size and, and, and staying net cash throughout the cycle while all the competitors are loading up on debt to take advantage of high oil prices and new opportunities, right? They are a truly contrarian company, uh, uh, as both our names, name, name six, uh, you know, uh, like. And mm-hmm. uh, the management style is very similar to how I, I imagine Warren Buffett uh, approaches oil and gas. And, and it's also a coincidence, right, that they are an oil and gas EMP 
which focuses on EO, e, uh, enhanced oil recovery, the same way Oxy, Oxy is and batteries. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I just looked here. There is a gray sheets uh, it's a listing here in the US, very liquid. H-I-P-E-F is that ticker. It trades on the on the KL stock exchange under H-I-B-I-S-C-S, which is obviously going to be more liquid. Obviously, there's going to be some currency risk there. But what should, is, that, is that the type of thing that, that investors should be concerned about? Obviously, it's it's always something, a, a major concern, but Malaysia is pretty stable these days, right? So the headline view of Malaysia is that uh, it's the 1MDB saga, right? Which yeah. is basically kleptocracy uh, and nepotism. But uh, as someone who actually lives here, I can say that uh, the top-down view of Malaysia doesn't really represent how the economy functions, right? Our uh, uh, politics at the top is quite messy, but our institutions are actually very robust relative to our neighbors. So if you think about something like Indonesia, you think about something like the Philippines, right? Vietnam, Thailand is something that you guys also know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the economy, uh, the our economies really flip at the switch uh, in terms of macro. Whereas Malaysia's institutions are actually very, very strong. Right? I've actually had the pleasure of reading uh, our central bank uh, governor announcements, uh, uh, as well as understanding the intricacies of uh, how our bosses try and develop the, the stock markets right, and derivative markets, as, as well as also the cultivation of CBDC and uh, inter-region, uh, inter-country right? uh, payment networks. So one was just linked with Singapore. Right now, we can use QR codes with Singapore from our Malaysian phones. So there's a lot of uh, emerging market development. Let's just put it that way, right? And I'm not trying to say that the risk here is lower than developed markets. Definitely not. But if you're talking about emerging markets, I think the risk is okay, you know? And these are not just my sentiments. I've had a friend from the UK visit and he, he visited uh, about 12 years ago. Right? And then he just came again last year or this year, I think. And he said the difference was night and day in terms of development. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have grown so much. And those are his words, right? Mm. So come to KL, you know, uh, have a look for yourself. It's, it's what, 2,000 US dollars for a flight ticket. <laughs> Enjoy yeah. a holiday here or something, right? Have a look. Visit yeah. some companies. Like, um, if anyone visits, just uh, uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Right? I'll be happy to bring you around and uh, sample cool. a local cuisine. Okay. Yeah. 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 Get some. Um, It'll be all the hidden spots too. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. Very cool. And there is obviously a, a an ETF that tracks the Malaysian market, EWM, which sounds like might not be a terrible idea if you want access to growth in the region, especially in Southeast Asia, which is is, is growing. Um, yeah. And in fact, I just uh, re correct. Uh, I just recently re uh, wrote an article about Malaysian macro on my blog. So if you want to know more, just cool. uh, have a look at it. Okay. I will link to that as well. Geopolitically, where is Malaysia in the whole China versus U.S. thing? It seems like a lot of countries in the region have kind of broken down along that fault line with, you know, obviously Japan and Korea being U.S. allies, Philippines being a little on the fence. Vietnam is, is surprisingly, perhaps given the history, a U.S. ally now. Other parts of the, you know, the Mekong there are, are Chinese vassal states, for lack of a better word. But um, yeah, so where's Malaysia? Okay, so um, Malaysia is actually quite, uh, I would say, split down the middle, quite neutral mm -hmm. in the sense that Malaysia does have a 20% uh, Chinese population, sure. right? And I would, as, as uh, you know, a local Chinese, uh, I think most of the Chinese population tend to side with the China side. Mm 
So in terms of our Malay uh, overlords, right? <laughs> Basically, and the Malays, they are 60% of the population, they have a stranglehold on the voting base, right? Mm-hmm. And they actually call the shots over the Chinese. If you read sure. our political history, it's there. So in terms of the Malay administration, right? They are actually truly neutral. They truly do not pick sides in the sense that they need to be worried about the Chinese voter base, right? They need their spot. But at the same time, um, they're, they're uh, very much not wanting to lean completely to China and become mm-hmm. reliant on it, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the new Anwar administration, Anwar, uh, you know, if you know him from 20 years ago, he actually has a history of uh, being seen as a cosmopolitan as well as being seen as a progressive. So uh, his views are very, let's just say, democratized, right? And that's his policy. But at the same time, he needs to be realistic about his voter base, right? Which is, uh, let's say, 50% Chinese, which is more of the progressive side of things. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the, the, the voter uh, framework. On the more, um, on the more, sorry, where was I going with this one? <laughs> on the more economic side, right? Yes, on the more economic side, there are actually two major things that uh, need to be mentioned. One is that because of the 20% Chinese population, right, a lot of them actually live in a small north northern island called Penang. And Penang happens to be uh, control 7% of global TAM for, uh, for la- trailing edge semiconductor testing equipment. Mm. Right, so it's lagging edge, a uh, trading edge, which is not you know Intel and TSMC's uh area, but uh trading edge are still uh semiconductors are still used in cars, still using calculators, five G base stations, right? Stuff that are not so complicated, and China is going to become uh you know just by the by virtue of the commoditized nature of the business, it's going to become a manufacturing powerhouse in that in that subsector. So, mm. uh, Penang really does have a lot of economic heft in terms of even policy, right? Secondly, there is the decoupling situation of the global economy, which uh, is seeing a lot of uh, Western businesses move their manufacturing bases out of China to Southeast Asia, which is why I call Southeast Asia the next China of the world, right? Mm. The next factory of the world. Because we have this sweet, we are in this sweet spot where there's relative political stability, as well as uh, relatively low labor pool costs. Right? China's not, not so cheap anymore. And so uh, as a result of that, there's this sweet spot of relative political stability in Southeast Asia and relatively low labor pool costs, right? even compared to China. So that gives you the conditions for being the factory of the world. right? But there's also the, I see as a very big recipient of FDI from both sides, West and East, uh, over the next generation. Mm. And then in terms of decoupling, right? Uh, yes, it's true that there's going to be French shoring from away from China towards the US. But at the same time, uh, there was a very recent Financial Times article, which uh, we can link later, where basically they were saying that despite the French shoring, the French shoring nations will still be very reliant on China for imports of mm. the source raw materials, right? Because that's really where all the stuff is being made, despite them actually assembling it for final delivery to the you know, more developed economies. And so uh, there is still a huge economic tie to China for the foreseeable future, right? And that's why I say that Malaysia needs to play both sides. There is really, uh, uh, let's just say that uh, it can play the carrot and stick with both. Yeah, yeah, which is also yeah. a, a very Asian thing. So, but you don't think that it would, with the, with the population 
obviously heavily Malay and the government as well. You don't think that that would ultimately call the shots with them siding with the U.S. if push came to shove? I don't think so because the Malays of Malaysia do not necessarily uh, care about either side. Right, they're right. not necessary. They're, they're truly neutral in that yeah. sense. Yeah. Or you, if you want to be uh, skeptical, self-interested, right? Sure. So they lean to. Yeah. Well, I mean, so is everybody. But yeah, correct, correct. So uh, the good thing about uh being self-interested is that uh you know you won't die for it, right? And if someone gives you a bigger pot of gold, right, you probably lean towards that. So it's really in flux who they're actually end up backing, mm. right? Uh, Philippines seem to have chosen chosen a side, but I think mm. all everyone else aside from Singapore. Uh, which is very related to the Taiwan issue, um, uh, are trying their best to stay out of it, right? Mm. It's risky, right? What, so going back to Malaysia real quick, so what are the major industries? Obviously, oil, Petrobras is a, com- a company everyone will have heard of. You mentioned the semiconductors there up in Penang. What other, are there any other major industries that we could know, we should know about? Malaysia is a very heavily, uh, su- surprisingly so, su- service sector economy, mm-hmm. right? The service sector basically makes up half of the economy. Uh, manufacturing makes up about 25%. And, you know, the rest is uh, everything else. So um, manufacturing is uh, largely export. We are a great middleman in terms of assembly, not necessarily uh, source material manufacturing or commodities agriculture-wise. But uh, the service sector is 50% of the economy, which is interesting for two reasons. So basically what Malaysia did very successfully during the Mahathir era of the 80s and the 90s was uh, do the Polish model, where we basically uh, tried to create national champions through the Chebo model, uh, as well as the the, the uh, Kiretsu in Japan, right? Uh, decades back. So uh, there was a lot of PPP going on where the government partnered with the private sector to create uh, industrial champions to create the economies of scale necessary for uh, you know, export to export to developed nations, right? So it's a very uh they're trying to copy the, the South Korean success model. And they did it with great success, but uh that's really just uh OEM model, you could call that, right? You're basically just producing widgets for somebody else. You're not the brand owner. So they did try to create brands in terms of automotive brands like Proton, because cars are basically everything industrial, right? Mm-hmm. And you can do that. You can create a, a local brand for export. Then that's massively great for your industrial base. But unfortunately, we feel in terms of creating uh, you know, brand owners. So uh, today, we're very akin to the Polish economy in terms of having a lot of uh, OEM national champions like Top Glove, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, Highcom, and, uh, but not brand owners, right? So we're stuck with the very sliver of margin. The second thing about the service sector is that we happen to be in the low value added manufacturing part of the global value chain, right? So you think about semiconductors, we're 7% of global temp, but uh, it's semiconductor testing equipment, which is relatively, uh, in fact, it's truly commoditized and extremely fragmented industry with uh, very low margins relative to the, all the other segments of the global value chain, right? In semiconductors. So, um, you know, we happen to be stuck in, the, in that uh, middle-class trap, you could call it, right, for the past 20 years, where we have been very good in terms of producing low-value-added services, right, but not really graduating to the high-value-added services which propel the likes of Japan and South Korea into high-income status. And uh, we're getting there because I think we will reach high-income status as defined by 30,000 US dollars per capita, right, annual income, 
by 2028, if I'm not wrong. It was supposed to be 2020. So it's been delayed by a decade, right? Yeah, we'll cover but it in such a- we're nearly there, right? We're within, you know, almost there. So uh, that's interesting, right? Because mm. you wouldn't have imagined Malaysia to be more advanced on a per capita basis than China, for instance. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on the global economy? Um, I guess maybe starting with China, what do you see there in terms of, you know, the COVID reopening? Uh, maybe hasn't quite been as big as advertised, but maybe you have a different view. And then the US and Europe and all these other things, yeah. So I want to clarify that I'm not a China macro expert, but I'll still okay. I'll just give my views, right? For fun. Well, so yeah. China's main, uh, the way I see China's main problem is their outsized uh, property sector, right? Which is about 25% of their GDP, as well as their lagging industrial sector, which has been lagging uh, basically zombie companies for the past decade. And um, the situation with Chinese economy now, uh, when you add their declining population base, right? Uh, just to digress, the working age population has started declining since 2018, if I'm not wrong, right? Now it's absolute population decline, <laughs> right? So you put these three factors together, right? They're basically in a very Japanification situation and accelerated so, right? And um, there's a lot of, so basically the way I see China from a very 30,000 feet point of view is uh, they're in the, in the first innings of uh, Japan's early 90s. Uh, and they're, in, uh, they're, they're basically having no choice but to do a smooth deleveraging for yeah. at the very least the next decade. It's a lost decade. Mm-hmm. That's something I'm almost very sure. Wow, that's and a to kind be fair, of a contrarian take there, but okay, yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean, to be to be fair, Europe's the same, right? And uh, I don't think it's really contrarian. I think this is a very uh, consensus view, right? In okay, the sense okay. that... Um, Maybe I introduced they, many they, China bowls, but yeah, go on. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, you're right. So China is really a tier of two economies, <laughs> right, Charles Dickens? So basically, they have a very high margin, uh, high growth technology-based sector, as well as a very low, low margin, low, uh, low growth industrial sector. Right, uh, you know, sixty percent of the GDP is still exports, twenty five percent is property. Uh, I'm not sure the tech, but it's not not uh not really large. It's high growth, but it's not very large. So with the crackdown on the tech sector, um, I think that uh you know the high growth component has been uh you know normalized, and the uh, low growth problems are still there, right? So I really don't see where the massive growth that moves the needle comes from. It's really going to be a uh, uh, a treading water situation at best, and on top of that, you have absolute population decline, which is mm. the worst ingredient for economic growth, right? Mm. So there's just a lot of headwinds for them to rec- to 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 overcome, mm. uh, from a purely capitalist point of view. Now maybe mm. they introduce something some new model which I'm not aware of, right? But we have to wait and see. All right, that's all very interesting, uh, Aaron Peck. You gave us a lot to talk about a lot to think about certainly in terms of these cyclical stocks in the u.s and then also over there in malaysia uh, in closing let's uh you mentioned your substack value investing.substack.com great domain probably hopefully attracts a lot of search engine traffic uh wh- where else can people find you on the internet sure so uh you can uh, hit me up on linkedin or uh twitter mm-hmm. um in a circular way, the links are actually on my Substack. But mm-hmm. allow me to uh, promote my blog a little bit, if it's okay. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. 
So I'm actually changing my region coverage from Southeast Asia to the US, right? Uh, I just announced it uh, yesterday. And I'm actually raising my prices uh, from $10 a month to $30 a month to keep up with the market rate on Substack, right? So the price hike is hitting on May 1st. Uh, all existing subscribers before then are actually automatically grandfathered into my old rates. So if you want to enjoy, uh, you know, uh, 30%, 70% discount into perpetuity, uh, please uh, support me on valueinvestingsubsec.com, right? And uh, it's still $10 until May 1st, right? After which it'll be $30. Yes, and the the Twitter is value investing Z. I guess you weren't quite yes. as lucky there with the domain, but then again, Twitter is probably going away very soon. So no, I don't I don't know that, but we'll see with the way that's oh, I happen to, to, to mismanaged to, probably. To, yeah, exactly. Such a dumpster fire. Anyway, that's another topic for another day. Um, very cool. Yeah, that, thanks so much for that, Aaron. And um, yeah, so check out, make sure you subscribe before May 1st and you can lock in the old rate. And even at the new rate, it's, it's a bargain for what you get. But do that and follow Aaron on all the um, areas mentioned. And do you use the, are you, have, have you been using the notes thing? Uh, I have not started, but I intend to soon, right? Yeah, I'm trying okay. to. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I have, and it's, it's pretty cool. But there's some glitches. But anyway, awesome. Well, with that, we'll, we'll thank you for listening here. And thank you, Aaron, for coming on. And with that, we will leave you. We'll be back again next week. Look forward to speaking to you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.